different aspects of socialism, price and wage controls, capital controls, import substitutions, government subsidies to failing enterprises, expropriation of private property with or without compensation, and heavy regulation of uh, the economy bordering on central planning continue to be introduced in some parts of the world. In recent years, we saw a vigorous attempt to introduce socialism in Venezuela and in its populist form also in Argentina. Even the United States is not immune from experimenting with arguably socialist policies, such as government uh, subsidies to failing state-owned enterprises, expropriation of private property. We all remember Kilo versus uh, City of New London, Supreme Court decision from a few years back, and increasingly opposition to free trade, as was practiced in the region where I'm from and as I remember well. Now, to make matters slightly more complicated, in, in the United States, term socialism also encompasses uh, social democratic policies as exercised in, uh, in Scandinavian countries, uh, which can be defined as heavy taxation and a great deal of redistribution. While it is probably fair to say that socialism today is a much less precise concept than it used to be and means different things to different people, some form of socialism remains, for whatever reasons, um, an ideal that many people aspire to and find morally compelling and desirable. Question is why? To help us understand that question, I'm happy to welcome to the Cato Institute uh, professors Jonathan Haidt from uh, the New York University and Leda Cosmides and John Tooby from the University of California, Santa Barbara. To save time, I will not read through their bios, which are available in printed form outside, and hand the podium over to our first speaker, Leda Cosmides. All right. There's a very basic political divide. In fact, I heard it on C-SPAN last week. People ask, are humans basically good or basically bad? Um, Liberals often say, we're basically good. We're natural socialists <clears throat> who enjoy sharing and just corrupted by a culture of private property and capitalism. Uh, conservatives often say, we're basically bad. We're self-interested, selfish, exploitive, and we need culture to rein in those motives. So which is true? Is human nature basically good or basically bad? I would say neither. Um, that for an evolutionary psychologist like me, it's, it's not a scientifically coherent question. And here's why. From my strange point of view, <clears throat> the human brain is a computational system that's produced by evolution. It's composed of many different programs that are evolved adaptations. Each of these evolved programs is designed to execute its functions when it detects cues that the problem that it evolved to solve is at hand. <clears throat> and these Programs do lots of different things from causing family love and aggression to cooperation and theft. They, they do different things. So human nature, to me, is a collection of reliably developing species-typical information processing adaptations. From this point of view, we're not basically good or bad. Basically, 
were collections of adaptations that execute their functions, or adaptation executors. From this view, the mind, the mind is not a blank slate or a, copy, a, a content-free copying machine. It contains a lot of functionally specialized programs, each well-engineered for solving a different adaptive problem, mating, hunting, cooperating groups, problems, faced, problems in survival and, and reproduction faced by our hunter-gatherer ancestors. Those problems evolved to navigate a small-scale social world. The hunter-gatherers from whom we're descended lived in small, face-to-face -face, um, bands, semi-nomadic ones, of anywhere from 50 to 200 people, men, women, and children included, uh, many of whom were family, friends, neighbors, people they knew. Um, people they knew, whose character they knew, and who, where they knew what they were doing. They could monitor their behavior. Now, our mind is very well designed for understanding that vanished world, obviously not markets in which we cooperate, mostly indirectly, with millions of anonymous strangers. So when we're seeing markets, when we're seeing the modern world, <coughs> we're seeing it through the eyes of our ancestors, through a, a, a brain that was designed uh, by a world that doesn't exist anymore. Now, importantly, a lot of these evolved programs are content-rich and, and domain-specific in, in a way that used to be called by philosophers as which you could think of as innate ideas in them. Like expert systems in artificial intelligence, they're equipped with concepts and inferences that apply in one domain, uh, but not in others. These organize our experiences, and, and actually, they don't constrain what we do. Without them, we would learn nothing. They generate particular inferences, inject recurrent concepts and motivations into our mental life. They give us our passions and motivations, cause us to think certain very specific thoughts, make certain ideas, feelings, and reactions seem reasonable, interesting, and memorable. Consequently, they pay a, play a key role in shaping human culture and society. Um, knowing the structure of them is necessary for understanding why some ideas spread very easily from mind to mind and others don't, and why some institutions succeed and others fail. So the key point I want to make today <clears throat> for understanding socialism and human nature is that several different evolved programs regulate cooperation and sharing. And so just to start out, I want to ask, well, was Karl right, Marx right about collective action in hunter-gatherers? If you remember, what, what Karl Marx thought was he believed that existing hunter-gatherers, data was coming from anthropologists going to different parts of the world, colonial parts of the world, and coming back to Europe, um, and by extension, our ancestors, he believed that they lived in a, a state of primitive communism where all labor was accomplished through collective action, and sharing was governed by the decision rule from each according to his ability to each according to his need. He thought that the overthrow of capitalism would bring forth an economically advanced society with similar properties. All you need to do is abolish private property, and all labor will once again be accomplished through collective action. And because the mind reflects the material conditions of existence, I'm not exactly sure what's meant by that, but the hunter-gatherer communal sharing rule is going to emerge once again and dominate social life. And as you know, based on his theory, 20th century institutions and laws governing property, labor, trade, the legitimacy of consent and dissent were changed all across the planet with a big impact on the lives of the people in those countries, but not at all the utopian ones that he had hoped for. <clears throat> so was he right? It was his view of hunter-gatherer labor and sharing rules correct, and if not, what cognitive programs generating cooperation did the selection pressures endemic to hunter-gatherer life build? Well, there's been many, many studies of, of existing hunter-gatherers and 
converging evidence from paleoanthropology. And my, one of my favorites is this classic study by, um, by Hilly Kaplan, Hillard Kaplan and Kim Hill on food sharing among at Ache for, foragers in Paraguay. And what they find, and this is what basically everybody who studies hunter-gatherers finds, is that hunter-gatherers are, yes, they're cooperative, but it's not an orgy of indiscriminate cooperation. Um, there are several alternative sharing rules, even within the same cultural group, for different kinds of goods and resources. And one of the important triggers for alternative sharing rules is perception of variance due to luck uh, versus effort. So what do I mean by triggered? Well, some cultural patterns are evoked, not, not merely transmitted. Complex patterns can be elicited by cues that activate a specific evolved mechanism where the behavioral complexity arises from the evolved mechanism, uh, not transmitted cultural knowledge. And so in, in this way, <clears throat> I apologize for my voice, I'm getting over a cold. Um, our brains are like something that you see on the streets of Santa Barbara that's called the Santa Barbara land shark, especially when it comes to cooperation, with, where we have many different kinds of, of programs generated by different evolved systems, cooperation. So this is the Santa Barbara land shark. If you're sitting in a cafe on State Street in Santa Barbara, you might see this go down this, the, the street, and you might say, oh, look, it's a tour bus, nice tour bus. Then you might see this. What? What, 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 what is this thing? Then you might see this. What is it? Is it a boat? Is it a bus? What? It's two mints in one. What, what is this? Um, it's the same vehicle, and its general function is transport. Um, in the same way that a general function might be cooperation, but it contains complex machinery that generates two alternative modes of operation, and which set of machinery is activated is triggered by information about the local environment, here provided by the perceptual system of the driver. Um, when it's on the street, it operates as a bus, the wheels come down, it rolls. When it's on the ocean, it operates on the boat, uh, uh, there's a propeller and rudder engaged, it moves by displacing water. So the experience of the street versus the ocean doesn't create these two different complex functional designs, the wheels versus the propellers, et cetera. It activates them. So what I would say is that our, our, we have a land shark brain. Oh, there are many different evolved systems regulating cooperation. Um, there's risk pool reciprocation, where the lucky share with the unlucky and reverse roles, and that's what I'm going to talk most about. There is social exchange, favors, different, uh, trading different resources, et cetera. Collective action, cooperation with two, three, or more people to achieve a common goal and share the resulting benefits. And that can happen in rather pro-social contexts like hunting or shelter building, but also in warfare, in coalitional aggression. And then other deep engagement relationships that John may mention, I'm not sure about, of friendship that involved valued individuality with close, close others. So the first case I want to talk about is <coughs> this case, this situation from Kaplan and Hill about alternative sharing rules within the same hunter-gatherer group. So hunting is a risky business. Um, you, on four out of 10 hunts, you'll come back with nothing, even when you're trying really hard. It, the variance in success is very high, and it's mostly due to luck, not skill as a hunter. With, with, with meat, with hunted foods, what, what hunter-gatherers mostly do is they pool the risk. They pool this risk. There's up to band level sharing to deal with these frequent reversal of fortunes. I come back with nothing today, you share with me. You come back with nothing tomorrow, I share with you. I'm storing food in the form of a social obligation with other people. 
And this is closest to the sharing rule from each according to his ability to each according to his need. It may be what the anthropologists were noting when the anthropologists from whom he was getting his information were noting. I don't know. Other foods, like gathered foods, um, when, when you're gathering uh, nuts, when you're gathering plant foods, there the variance in foraging success this is, is low. And the variance is mostly due to effort. Did you go out? Did you try? Did you forage today? Those foods are shared primarily within the family and via reciprocation with particular partners. And then other goods are shared by, by reciprocation or trade, even with people in other, other bands. Well, what gives rise to this pattern? Is it a culturally accumulated package of norms plus with, that are acquired by some sort of content-free learning plus imitation? Or are our minds like the Santa Barbara land shark with alternative sharing rules triggered by the experience of high versus low variance? Well, you can't just tell by merely noticing, noticing differences between cultures. You need to know more about the design of the mind. Well, so you can ask, well, <clears throat> to elicit these patterns, do you have to have knowledge that you acquired by hunting and gathering? Did you have to be a hunter-gatherer to have this, this, um, uh, th these different sharing rules? So you can ask, what about people raised in weird cultures, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic cultures? Well, if you do this with Japanese and American college students, give them a verbal lottery, so, and it's one shot, um, they're more willing to share uh, share uh, the high variance resource and the low variance resource. Um, and, that, and that holds regardless of, of the subject's particular ideologies about distributive justice. You can also then ask, well, how quickly do weird people detect resource variance and respond with sharing? So this was addressed, uh, Vernon Smith and Bart Wilson teamed up with um, Hillard Kaplan of the study that I was showing you before and another anthropologist, Eric Schneider. Um, and they asked a very entertaining question, which is what happens when Southern Californians forage? Um, do, do weird people behave like hunter-gatherers? So they, they created a virtual world for foraging, uh, a game where eight people forage and they discover properties of the world. And you have an avatar and the, each person has an avatar of a different color, but we're anonymous to each other. Um, and each round you choose whether to forage on the red patch or the blue patch. The red patch is, very, is a very high variance patch. Um, high variance, high mean patch. Uh, the blue patch is low variance, low mean patch. Now, when, after you foraged, you can put resources in your own pot or another avatar's pot. And after a round of foraging, avatars can communicate with one another, um, but there's no mechanism for enforcing contracts. And uh, there's 20 rounds, but the subjects don't know how many there'll be. So does spontaneous reciprocal sharing emerge? Um, and if so, is there only one sharing norm? Is sharing the same in response to both patches? Is it triggered in response to the high variance patch only? How long, if, if that, how long before the high variance patch triggers more sharing? Is it immediate? Does it take a long time? And given an ancestral pattern of, of men hunting and specializing in high variance resources, meat, um, in response to the high variance patch, do men respond more strongly to it than women? Well, this, this is showing, this is showing the, the, the data. And what you're seeing, I can't exactly point, but um, spontaneous reciprocal sharing, these are the rounds. Um, this is sharing on the low variance patch, men and women. And those two are the high variance patch. The dark line is men, and the dotted line is women. Um, and what you're seeing is for the high variance research, you're getting, you're getting uh, spontaneous sharing emerging, and it's even happening on the first round here, immediately. 
immediately. Um, you're, you're not getting it for the low variance resource. It stays low the whole time. And, and, uh, and you're also, interestingly, although both men and women are sharing more in response to the high variance patch, the, the, the men are choosing the high variance patch more. And, and once they've chosen it, they share more on that patch. Um, but both are sharing hugely on the high variance patch. In other words, these weird people are immediately detecting which patch is high, high variance, high, high gain versus low variance, low gain. And they responded to that experience of luck with risk pool sharing. It's just very natural to us. It's the fingerprints of evoked culture, of the land shark, of, of the behavioral complexity arising from a mechanism that's activated um, by alternative cues. Well, what happens when someone fails to cooperate? Do our minds categorize that person as a free rider or cheater to be punished, avoided, excluded um, just by virtue of failing to cooperate or failing to give as much? Well, it turns out that actually categorizing everyone who contributes less than others as a free rider would be a, a bad design from an evolutionary perspective. Because there's an important adaptive problem, which is that in hunter-gatherer ecologies and now, every cooperator is at some time going to fail to contribute due to mistake, injury, or error. And excluding or punishing those, those people is going to be a large fitness error, error because you need repeated gains in trade to get selection for cooperation in the first place. So the solution is concepts and inference systems that look for and respond to cooperative versus exploitive motivations. And it turns out that that distinction is embedded within a lot of evolved programs, including in our research, reasoning mechanisms specialized for social exchange that look for cheaters, not innocent mistakes, in a free rider concept and collective action that attaches to people with exploitive intent, but not those who fail by accident. Then it happens without conscious awareness. It's almost as if we have a grammar of sharing. Where these two sound reasonable, if he's a victim of an unlucky tragedy, then we should pitch in to help him out. If he spends his time loafing and living off of others, then he doesn't deserve our help. Those sound kind of human. Here are two that sound very weird. If he's a victim of an unlucky tragedy, then he doesn't deserve our help. If he spends his time loafing and living off others, then we should pitch in and help him out. Those sound kind of weird to a human mind. And a lot of cultural attitudes and transmission might be shaped by these same sharing rules. So if you think about the political debate about homelessness, people argue about whether people are homeless due to bad luck bad fortune, or whether it, they're not trying, whether it's low effort. But they don't argue about what follows from that. It's as if they just assume if it's bad luck, sharing, helping out is appropriate. If it's not, maybe it's not as appropriate. That part doesn't get debated or talked about. So political attitudes in mass cultures are sometimes shaped by mechanisms that evolve for this small scale social world. And our colleague Michael Bang-Peterson in Denmark has done a lot on this. And one of my one particularly interesting one is how quick, quickly political attitudes can change by sharing these alternative rules, uh, triggering these alternative rules. So you can change perceptions of luck versus effort, and you can change people's attitudes about something like like welfare. Um, it turns out that people have different defa default assumptions, different stereotypes about welfare recipients. So in Denmark. People think of people who are on social welfare as unlucky. In the US, more people think of them as lazy. Um, and so this is, this is opposition to social welfare. And it's higher in the US than, than, than in Denmark, uh, not surprisingly. But what happens if you replace that stereotype with information? So there's a control condition where you say nothing. There's a, a reciprocator condition where you say, imagine a man who's currently on social welfare. He's always had a regular job, but has now been the victim of a work-related injury. 
he's very motivated to get back to work again. And then the third condition is, imagine a man who's currently on social welfare. He has never had a regular job, but he's fit and healthy. He's not motivated to get a job. Well, what happens to attitudes towards welfare recipients, and is it different in Denmark or the United States? It turns out, when you make it clear, there's no difference between Danes and Americans. Um, when you have the laziness cues, they're both, we're all opposed, more, more opposed to social welfare. When you have the effort cues, we're all less opposed to social welfare, and there was zero difference between Denmark and the US. They changed Danes into Americans and Americans into Danes with that simple information. So now, in light of the psychology, consider what happens in an economic downturn if we have this psychology that where different sharing rules are triggered by luck versus effort. Firms go out of business. People lose their jobs due to bad luck, um, despite hard work, despite having cooperative motivations. Bad luck is causing high variance in forging success. Factors having in the economy that had nothing to do with what I, as an employee of a company, was doing. <clears throat> Seeing that should activate motivations for band level sharing, risk pooling, redistribution from the lucky to the unlucky. If they're victims of, an, of bad luck, then we should pitch in to help them out. I want to help members of my band under those circumstances. And if the lucky are unwilling, they must be bad people. That's what humans do. We, when there's bad luck, we help each other out. That's, that's that sharing rule. Bad people, we should force them to do the right thing. Support goes up for, for government, band level, redistribution, low interest rates, business bailouts, et cetera, all framed as, as help for um, an unlucky situation, which distorts prices, market signals, uh, causing, I don't need to tell you, causing a lot of malinvestment. Um, we're in the Hayek Auditorium, so I won't explain that. Uh, which is going to make more firms go out of business, which is going to make more new businesses fail because they're responding to the wrong kinds of information. Um, it's going to make it harder for people to, to save, to invest in new businesses. Job creation will suffer. As more businesses fail and fewer new jobs are created, everyone knows people who lost their jobs who are trying hard to find jobs but cannot. So you've got your experienced people with high effort and bad luck, activating more sympathy for redistribution, creating a negative feedback loop, the economy continues spiraling down, and liberty and prosperity suffer. The problem is that there's a mismatch, or one, one of many problems, is that there's a mismatch between the modern world versus the ancestral world. Our minds are equipped with programs that evolve to navigate a small world of relatives, friends, neighbors, not for cities and nation states of thousands or millions of anonymous people. Certain policies, laws, and institutions satisfy the moral intuitions these programs generate. But because these programs are now operating way outside the envelope of environments for which they're designed, laws that satisfy the moral intuitions they generate may regularly fail to produce the outcomes that we're desiring and anticipating. Even worse, they can cause us to overlook policies that might have the consequences that, that we're looking for. These mental programs can so powerfully structure our inferences that certain policies may seem self-evidently correct and other self-serving or immoral. But modern conditions often produce outcomes, as you know and we've known since Adam Smith, that seem paradoxical to our evolved programs. Venal motives can be the engines that reliably produce very humane outcomes. And what can seem like good intentions can make a hell on earth. So to preserve 
liberty and prosperity for all. Yes, you absolutely need to know how markets work and understand the consequences of economic policies. But you also need to understand human nature because you need to be able to explain why certain, it's not enough to know what kinds of policies will help. You need to be able to explain why certain policies are helpful and others are harmful in ways that engage our evolved moral intuitions instead of fighting against them. Thank you. Thank you, Leda, very much. Uh, our next speaker is John Tooby. Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming. And uh, thank you, Marion, for inviting us to such an interesting and uh, career-ending event. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, so are we up there? OK, great. Uh, so this is just a quick flash that lots of people uh, have worked with us uh, on the kinds of research we do. and. I would say 80% of what we do, uh, there's, let me start differently. So we used to have the Swiss Army knife as our symbol for a mind which has many different functionally specialized mechanisms. And our students with disgust sort of pointed out that the uh, smartphone, which came along after we'd been in business for 20 years, was actually a much better model. And the point, the point is, as Lita said, is that, and it's a very counterintuitive notion, is that as part of our standard reliably developing equipment, there's lots of specialized neural programs which uh, cause us to interpret things in certain ways, to feel certain sets of preferences uh, in, in response to certain kinds of cues. And there is learning and there's construction and there's especially uh, arranging these things together into sets. But it's not the old fashioned model of everything is rationality or intelligence or cultural learning is in I, my biased opinion, decisively falsified. And we're getting a lot of new information about what human nature is and uh, how social phenomena are structured by understanding the code, the actual, you know, what happens to information that's received by the human mind. It goes to one or more of these programs and it's that then operate on in certain ways. And that creates, uh, you know, triggers various motivations or certain interpretations of what's happening and so on. So uh, these are now, so I would say about 80% of the things we've studied bear on this question of politics uh, and morality, as uh, Jonathan has uh, uh, done a marvelous job of discussing uh, and illuminating. Uh, anyway. Um, So, uh, and this is in the premise of the, I still have to stop and talk about it because as an individual human being uh, who started out a socialist on the left, and uh, I am just flabbergasted how impervious the world I live in, the university world, and the larger world of politics is to the, you know, oceans of data about the relative performance of free markets versus uh, socialist systems. So that just pick one thing is that, you know, Hong Kong's uh, GDP increased 180 times between 1961 and 1999. The, the per person GDP rose by 87 times, right? These are huge, stupendous numbers, right? And you get, uh, you know, uh, if you contrast uh, market societies with the 
you know, existing socialist societies, uh, not pseudo-socialist societies like Scandinavians where the actual economic markets work uh, pretty much like here. It's just the amount of redistribution is different. Um, anyway, or you take something like Venezuela, um, which has the largest petroleum reserves in the world, and petroleum products are now scarce in Venezuela. Uh, that uh, Nobel laureate Joseph Stieglitz predicted success of the of the Chavez and his new turn for Venezuela. And uh, you know, in the years that followed, oil production collapsed. There are now energy blackouts on a daily basis. Two-day work weeks, so we don't use too much energy. Food riots, forced labor. Okay. And, uh, and not only is that just the latest example of what happens, but also I'm fascinated by what Joseph Stieglitz, why he thinks what he thinks, because he's a smart guy, right? Um, and so there, there's some uh, strong sets of appeals for disregarding these mountains of evidence, right? Um, I, I would say empirically, there's not much of a case, and, uh, uh, but people don't pay attention. So there's something else going on. Um, and so the proposal is that the code, the program structure, and certain of our evolved social and non-social instincts, and I'll only be able to talk about you know, four things out of you know, 100, uh, can be activated in certain configurations that make socialism seem appealing and freedom sinister. Uh, and uh, OK. So I'm not arguing that our evolved psychology dooms us inevitably to end up in the socialist states, right? Uh, it's possible, but I don't think that's really the argument. Uh, and I just look at my own history where, you know, I was on the left and then I took microeconomics and wow, that was very impressive. It's despite the fact that the microeconomics class was full of propaganda advising you not to take this stuff so seriously. There's no pure competitive markets. There's, you know, uh, breakfast cereals are uh, monopolies because they artificially differentiate them so they can get a monopoly between, you know, post-toasties and, and sugar uh, flakes and so on. Uh, and this was at Harvard, and they were really intense that you not, in fact, be impressed by microeconomics. Um, anyway, uh, so... The point is that uh, these of all programs could be woven together in our minds combinatorially to reinforce or undermine various political projects, right? Uh, ideologies, political movements, economic regimes. Uh, and uh, there's lots of these things. So lots of things are attractors that humans end up in. So predatory, hierarchical, uh, hereditary often, uh, exploitive systems are really a human norm. Uh, and uh, then group-based supremacist systems break out, you know, in Japan and Germany and uh, uh, communism was, and we're now facing uh, Islamic supremacism. Uh, uh, there's, there is, in independent places, the emergence of, you know, what you might call decentralized common law market systems. Those happen more rarely, but they do spontaneously emerge. Uh, and, of course, socialist systems. Uh, and so... Uh, what I would argue uh, is that you might analyze this as that there's the first thing is based on our low level aesthetic responses to certain social interactions and situations, there's a, it evokes a sort of sympathy for what you might call so, uh, romantic socialism. Okay? And that that's you know, 
for individuals, it's a sort of attractor. It's a world you can imagine yourself living in. I mean, and and what your would your personal life uh, be like under socialism? And that this arises from what ancestral band life was like, uh, some aspects of it. Um, and that there's a second powerful thing, and I don't want to just say it's all the first thing, that, that in fact, the second thing is that there's a, a percentage of every population that's power seeking. And that socialism is extremely attractive because it says that the present holders of property, uh, whether they have lots of property or only a little bit of property, that that's an arbitrary system that should be, and, it, and there should be an elite that makes decisions about you know, the most basic economic uh, arrangements. And that's incredibly intoxicating, right? Um, and intellectuals like me, you know, we're against uh, free markets. And why are we against free markets despite the data? Uh, well, markets make intellectuals irrelevant, right? That we, we, have, high, we have high high opinion of ourselves, right? We ought to be in charge. We're the, we're, we, we specialize in rationality, right? And yet, somehow it's all self-executing in a way which doesn't uh, cast good light on us, right? Okay. So there's this huge bias among uh, intellectuals uh, about why things, spontaneous order, is in fact uh, terrible in all sorts of ways. And, and it's the basic industry of, you know, social science, university life is a slight overstatement, but is producing critiques, right? Um, and uh, anyway, so for this category of people, not just intellectuals, there's then the real power seekers who displace intellectuals after a while uh, in, in successful movements, is what do you feel entitled to do against others to implement socialism where you're in a lead? And so the uh, power seekers, group B, exploit phenomenon A, or, or the sort of, you know, the, the nice undergraduate imagining how nice the world, socialist world would be, okay? Um, and it involves the activation of one of the most powerful systems of instincts humans have, which is a coalitional psychology, group phenomena, right, okay? Uh, but first, before I talk about that, if I will have time, uh, 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 I just want to talk first about romantic socialism and just to give you a feeling of, uh, and Lee just covered some of this. So, so we evolved the bands that were the individual's only protection from starvation, victimization, and intergroup aggression, right? So you didn't have supermarkets, you didn't have police. If you were in trouble, the only people you could go to were the you know, 10 or 20 or 30 adults in your community, right? And that was it. Um, and everybody, so we have data on this from various field sites, and there's also lots of evidence, bone evidence from bones about rates of injuries and so on. But you know, everybody sooner or later is uh, uh, injured in such a way uh, that they are prevented from gathering food for a long, you know, for weeks. Okay, if you're a chimpanzee, so uh, you die if that's the case because nobody brings you food, right? And that's a pretty chilly world, right? Humans are much nicer than that, but humans in your group, right? So it, we, we evolved not as individuals foraging as individuals, that humans are uh, uh, obligatorily group living animals who have many, are really fine textured adaptations, including uh, things which give rise to various moral uh, 
phenomena, but uh, also just various types of cooperation and basic level emotions deal with the fact that we need to manage our social world such that people care about us um, and uh, care about us enough to protect us, to feed us when we get into trouble. Um, and one of the ways that, that, so, you know, as Lita was talking about with the risk pooling, is there's a nice, simple sort of cue input that spontaneously activates this desire to share, okay? Uh, but beyond that, uh, uh, there's the following desperately important game for ancestors, uh, which is that uh, uh, if somebody's being nice to you, they could be nice to you because they care about you, or they could be nice to you because they have an ulterior motive. You're temporarily high status, or you might give them something or something. And it's very, so, and you as a human, ancestrally as a human being, you had a finite number of social niches, you know, very small number, like, you know, six or seven or eight close friends or something like that, or a smaller set. And if you put a fair weather friend in there, somebody who's nice to you, seems perfectly nice to you, but when the going gets tough, they abandon you, okay? Then that's a big fitness problem for you. It's a big survival problem for you. And so the mind is desperately interested in people's motives for why they like you and to do this discrimination task because it's an error to do. So uh, I've forgotten his name, uh, but a rapper who had hundreds of people in his house and he had lived a very good life for 10 years and then he went bankrupt because he spent it all on his friends and then he just lives alone, right? Um, so that's that kind of error. Um, uh, Okay, and so, so one of the things the mind looks for is it looks for the following signal. Does this person trade off their own welfare for our wealth, for, for your wealth, for my welfare at, at any given time, okay? And that's a sign that they're not just in it for themselves, that they actually legitimately care. Uh, and we, talk, we have a paper called The Banker's Paradox. It's not really a paradox. But anyways, the, what people say about bankers is that when you need a loan, uh, you're a bad credit risk and you can't get one. And when you don't need a loan and you're doing well, bankers want to give you money, right? And say, for the hunter-gatherer, it's the same kind of situation. When you are in trouble, uh, you're a bad credit risk to the people around you, right? You're a much less good bet than when you're doing fine. And so the thing you need to do is to move in the social world in such a way as to cultivate a kind of valued, irreplaceable individuality inside your social group, okay? So, uh, the mind filters the world with this kind of thing. So this is another, uh, uh, the mind filters the world for people who treat you with some special affection and interest, right? And that's the most important thing to you, right? To people, it's a very major part of people's happiness and so on. Uh, and the, uh, but in contrast, the vast market-based economic systems exploit for their amazing productivity a very different cognitive system which has evolved to handle explicit contingent exchange. And we spent a lot of time studying the reasoning specializations involved in it. But the point about that is that you're looking at whether you get something that's worthwhile to you in your exchange, okay? And you're not, uh, it's not, you're not detecting people who are sacrificing for your welfare, right? And so every time you engage in a normal uh, market transaction, for a hunter-gatherer, that's a sign of social distance because 
they don't, you know, when, so, and this is true for us too in our personal lives. So if you go into somebody's, uh, they're invited over for dinner, uh, and you say, well, gee, I'll pay you 10 bucks for the biggest steak, but I expect a rebate on the lima beans, right? Uh, you'd be seen to be defective or barking mad, and, you know, I cringe at the thought of saying something like that. That's not how we deal with our friends, right? And so there's this tension or difference between uh, people who, who insist on an explicit payback in, for what they're due for you, those are people who are not part of your immediate circle, right? And so, so ancestrally, most of our production, most of our sharing, most of the exchange went by a very different set of rules that were from people you were really close to, right? And then we had, in addition, this ability that evolved for more distant social relations and explicit contingent exchange. And in the modern market world, that one thing, because it's so uh, productive, has eaten up most of how people uh, get their living. And, uh, and so it's displaced uh, the thing which would make, which we're designed to expect is a sign of a good world. A good world is one where you're surrounded by people who care, who care about you. Um, and so it's, it's really interesting. So, so some of these psychological mechanisms, they tend to terminate in their effects for a sh very short distance, like you know, uh, a mating relationship. It's two people, generally. And, uh, or a friendship could include more people, but it's still very short, uh, short scale. But so lots of chemistry is like that. It's just molecules are short and small. But carbon chains can be really, really, really long. So uh, it amazes me, even though I teach this, taught this for 30 years, that you know, your chromosome, single molecule, is a single giant molecule about five centimeters long. So you can see it with the naked eye, right? And that's just almost all molecules are, you know, uh, Avogadro's number is incredibly big, right? It's all the things in normal chemical world is very, are very small. Similarly, the thing about ex explicit contingent exchange is that it can be extend into indefinitely large chains. In fact, now it's it's global, right? And so, so that, that that there's this thing which its massive productivity and efficiency makes it huge, and yet it doesn't. Uh, it, it gives this these living that way gives some warning signs or some dissatisfaction that the, something's wrong with the world, um, and. Uh, uh, Okay, so then uh, another thing to talk about here is that uh, uh, another common kind of social interaction or behavior for our ancestors and for us is to move together in a coalition to attempt to achieve some common end. And a very important uh, uh, subset of this is, uh, is warfare and a very related uh, subset is political alliance within a group, right? Factions and so on. Uh, and so I've always liked uh, James Madison's line that the causes of faction are sown in the nature of man, right? So he's, I think of the Constitution as act actually a, a, a set of engineering on evolutionary psychology 1.0, right? And then, because uh, they really read deeply in terms of what people were really like and the, the and how things failed and how things succeeded. And it was very careful and thoughtful. Uh, and uh, anyway, uh, so it's really a problem to move as a group 
okay, because there's always interest in individuals in uh, defecting and so on. So it's a very rare phenomenon among other species. And uh, whereas chimpanzees and humans formed, have cracked this code of how to be a coalition. And that means you can win in uh, dominance contests and in aggression. If your group is larger than the other group, then you can displace and you can get access to. Uh, so is this one minute to the five more words? Okay. Um, okay. So and, and in the in the side the coalition. So to move as a group, uh, there it has to be a goal which people are is not always, but in general mutually beneficial for the members of the group. And the benefits have to be distributed in some way. There are distortions which come from hierarchies inside groups and so on, and they're non-trivial. But still, there's this underlying kind of socialist thing. You see public goods. Uh, and uh, uh, so there, the, 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 the basic logic of collective action is rooted in how people move and think in terms of groups. So it, it's like very hard to intellect. So if you're, so for example, if the organizing system for your group is a set of ideas, right? Then you can't, then there's this real tension which makes groups much more stupid than individuals, which is that if I wanted to innovate, if I thought had a thought that, oh, this is better than what the normal group thinking about this is, that makes you a bad group member because you're now attacking the group's coalitional flags, right? And so, uh, uh, so that's why we have like, you know, uh, Jonathan has this, formed this wonderful organization, the Heterodox Academy. But on universities, there is this real heated anger at people who are violent, who just want to think a little bit creatively or alternatively about some of the problems. Okay, because that makes you a bad group member in the coalition, right? Um, and uh, uh, the other thing, which. Uh, 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 I just want to throw out there Any, anyway, so. You show you're a good coalition member by sacrificing your individual effort for group ends. Um, and there should be some sharing of the cooperation. But, the, but, but there, here's one thing about individual cooperation versus group level cooperation. With individual cooperation, if somebody cheats me, there's a really simple cure for that. I don't interact with them. I don't, I don't exchange with them again because they've shown that that's not a, pay, a paying strategy. And that, that works great. So people, we have work on cheater detection and you know, termination of relationships and so on. Okay. In a group, if lots of people are, are contributing to the group and one person is not, you can't withdraw from the exchange, the end person exchange, right? Because then you're giving up all these good cooperators as well as the bad cooperator. And the, the, the sort of evolved resolution of that is that the mind identifies uh, it develops, it, we've evolved a punitive sentiment towards people who are not, in our minds, doing their share for the good of the group, right? And so people are positively disliked. So for intellectual disagreement, they're, it's a source of positive dislike. And especially, I want to say, in, in uh, socialist and especially communist countries, the way that people experience this is if you are not, you know, the, there's a perpetual war on, uh, there's this punitive sentiment which is free flowing. And so 
the fact that there are gulags and things like that, it's a natural kind of evoked cultural response to being in, in productive groups where people are not producing as much as they ought or things aren't going well. And since the ideology can't be wrong, if things are not going well, it must be individual misbehavior. And we have to find those individuals, the kulaks or whoever they are, and we have to really punish them in order to retain this really good romantic future. Okay. Um, and uh, one minute. Okay, great. So I can just say another really important thing here, and this is just to be a closing point, is that uh, zero-sum thinking is so... Uh, Exchange is positive sum. We engage in them is because I get something and the other person gets something. We're both better off, right? Um, but if your worldview is zero sum, uh, then uh, something that somebody else gets is means it was taken from you or your group, right? And so it's a very it's a very uh, uh, unpleasant way of experiencing the world, and it motivates things like envy. And the desire. So we have research on uh, motivations for uh, supporting welfare, and there's compassion, but there's also envy is a significant feature that people are willing to make poor people worse off in order to make rich people worse off, right? And uh, because they don't like the fact that rich people are better off than they are, right? Uh, and so, uh, and Groups, by their nature, ancestrally were zero-sum because they were largely involved in territory displacement and things like that. So I think I'll end there. And uh, great, thank you. Thank you, John. And uh, now to our last speaker, Jonathan Haidt. Okay. Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Marion. Uh, so uh, Albert Einstein is reputed to have said that uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Now, there are two problems with this quote. Um, the first is that that's a really bad definition of insanity. I hope to God Einstein didn't say that. That's really a better definition of foolishness. Fortunately, Einstein didn't say it. It might have been Charlie Brown. I don't know. But, you know, the Internet just tends to get credit wrong like that. Anyway, but it's a useful phrase. Um, and I think it's really what we've all three been, uh, been wrestling with here, why is it that people embrace very, very bad economic ideas generation after generation? And I think evolution is crucial in understanding why that is. Uh, and so the adapted mind and the work of John and Lita, which really created the field or opened up the field for psychologists to use evolutionary thinking and evolutionary tools, they made it possible for us to think about human nature as Walt Whitman would have said, do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I am large, I contain multitudes of absent motives. I think that's the way he put it, I'm not sure, I, it was from memory. Um, now actually, I didn't get the memo about the Swiss Army knife being out, so I, sorry, I, that's outdated. Um, but thinking about our minds as having just lots of stuff in it, which reflects our evolutionary preparedness for this lifelong camping trip that we were on, um, and now we live in a different way, is a very, very helpful way to think about human nature and to understand puzzles, especially recurrent puzzles. When the same puzzles and problems and, and foolishness crop up over and over again, generation after generation, it's a good idea to look to human nature to figure out why. Um, a very short summary would be that it's so clear to me, studying moral psychology, that we evolved to do tribalism. We have an enormous evolutionary heritage for tribalism. We also evolved to trade. We do have that as well. What we don't have is any evolutionary heritage that helps us or makes it easy for us to understand economics or evolution. Now, um, 
I'm going to talk more about some of these moral foundations. John and Lita both mentioned uh, the importance of policies meshing or not meshing with our evolved moral intuitions, moral foundations. So I'll talk about these topics. First, the foundations of morality. So my own research is on uh, where morality comes from, how it works, how it develops across cultures. And in my, uh, in my last book, I boiled moral psychology down to three, three principles. If you understand these three principles, you understand moral psychology. Um, I don't have time to go through all three today. I'm going to focus on the middle one, uh, that there are six intuitive foundations of morality. Now, when I was in graduate school, I was just so amazed that morality is so different around the world, yet bits and pieces are so similar even in communities, uh, cultures that could never have communicated. And I tried to reconcile this. How can the insights of anthropology about variation be reconciled with what I was reading in evolutionary psychology about human universals? And I just tried to map out, well, what are the, what are the issues that the anthropologists all talk about in their ethnographies and that the evolutionists have a good explanation for how it came about? I didn't want to make any just-so stories myself. I wanted to take off-the-shelf evolutionary thinking and connect it to anthropological variation. And these, uh, my colleagues and I believe, are the best six candidates. There's more, but these are the six really clear cases where humanity seems to have something, some sort of app that makes us sensitive to certain environmental conditions. So I'll run through these. Actually, for today, I'm only going to focus on the first three. That's what we need to understand economic policy. I'll briefly mention the others. So care. Um, we are mammals. And what that means, by definition, is mammary glands, which means that we nurse our young, which means that not just the female body is adapted for this long childhood, but the female mind is adapted. And in humans and others that have male investment, the male mind is adapted as well. So we care. We are moved. We are hurt. We, we feel compassion when we see a helpless, innocent creature suffering. This is clearly part of human nature. There's a lot of evolutionary writing about attachment theory from John Bowlby and others. Now, does all of this, all of this software, all of these apps, do they play a role in our political lives? Of course they do. These are photos that uh, Emily Eakins and I took at Occupy Wall Street. And you see a lot of stuff at Occupy uh, about compassion, uh, free empathy, compassion is our new currency. I can't hurt another without hurting myself. I'm not saying that conservatives uh, don't feel compassion. I'm not saying that they um, don't love their children or their dogs. But they don't base their political ideology or program suggestions on empathy in the same way that the left does. Um, here is a quote. It's funny. I just was, uh, I, I'm teaching a business ethics course. Two days ago, one of my students from India, we were talking after class, and he said, I was surprised to find that so many MBA students here at Stern support Sanders. They say his economic ideas are silly, but we need someone empathetic and honest. So again, if you're on the left, empathy is the proper foundation for moral and political programs. Second foundation, fairness and cheating. Long, a lot of evolutionary writing on reciprocal altruism from uh, Robert Trivers and others. Um, on the left, fairness tends, fairness has many meanings. But on the left, uh, one of the meanings that really comes to the fore politically is the idea of equality. Equality is a kind of fairness. So if the 1% own 43%, that is ipso facto, prima facie, unfair. And you don't even need to ask if maybe you know, Steve Jobs created a billion times more value than, than I did. Um, another sign, marching for the meek and weary, hungry and homeless. Tax the wealthy, fair and square. Now, everybody believes that the rich should be taxed fairly. But what does fairness mean? According to this sign, as you see on the bottom, how can they let us go hungry every day? 
So fair taxation is taxing until there is not hunger anymore. That would be fair because that would lead to um, equality. It's linked to care. This is a cartoon that's made the rounds on the internet over, over the last few years. If you just look at it, it makes a lot of sense. I find it very emotionally powerful, and I thought about this for a long time until I realized the reason it's so emotionally powerful, I think, is because it looks like they're brothers. And within a family, as, as Lita said, uh, you know, common pool resources, communal sharing, within a family, of course you want to do whatever it takes that everybody gets to enjoy the game. Um, within families, we are indeed collectivists on most matters. But if we were to extend this out to the whole country or the whole planet, it would mean um, that as long as there is someone who can't see, we must take from those who can see. Same thing with money. So I think that if you understand the moral emotions, you can see why certain images can be so powerful, but sometimes they don't mean exactly what, uh, what you might think at first. Uh, what we find empirically is that uh, conservatives see fairness very differently. They tend to focus on proportionality. Uh, these are photos Emily took, Emily Eakins took uh, at a Tea Party rally. Stop punishing success with a, a progressive tax rate. Stop rewarding failure with welfare and, and bailing people out. Um, so it seems much colder and harder, but again, if you're going to try to get cooperation going and you want to stop free riders, this is the kind of fairness that you need. Third foundation, liberty and oppression. And the key psychology here comes from a wonderful book by uh, Christopher Bohm called Hierarchy in the Forest. He studied a variety of tribal groups as well as chimpanzees. And he documents what he calls a reverse dominance hierarchy that even among uh, chimpanzees, but certainly among humans, it, they're very, uh, well, human hunter-gatherer groups are very egalitarian, but he says they are obsessive about anybody acting like an alpha. If one person rises up, it's not that just that others dislike them. It's that there's an urge to band together and take them down. And once you understand that urge as, a, as an app, as a response to bullying or an, al uh, an aggressive alpha male, now you can understand the flag of Virginia. I moved, I was at UVA for 16 years. It took me a while to notice that there's a dead person on the flag. Now, why would there be a dead person on your flag? Because the flag was created in 1770-something when the American, I should say the English people living in North America, rebelled against the English king, and they had to justify. Sic semper tyrannis, thus always to tyrants. It's exactly what Bohm talks about. The Declaration of Independence is a long list of the grievances justifying our taking him down, getting rid of him. And now you can understand this image from Occupy Wall Street. If the 99% could get together, they could crush and kill the 1%. Again, it's exactly the mechanism that Bohm is talking about. It's an app that got, gets triggered in some people, not in others. Now, uh, here there's some real left-right symmetry. Uh, the Tea Party sees government as the bully and oppressor, um, and the, while, whereas the, the left sees the rich and corporations. So there's a lot of similarity. You just have a different oppressor. Um, we have a lot of data on this, on how people vary by, uh, politically on these moral foundations. Uh, at my, if you go to yourmorals.org, you can take our surveys. I'll just show you a summary of our major survey that gives you scores on all the different moral foundations. And what you can see is that when, uh, when people come to our site and they register and they say that they're on the right, um, they actually give fairly high scores on all of these foundations. They endorse all of them. Now, here I've graphed out fairness as proportionality. If I'd put equality, it would have sloped the other way. But I don't think there is an equality foundation. When people come to our site and they say they're on the left, they prioritize care. Very high scores on all questions about care and compassion and nurturing. Um, that is the dominant aspect of their morality. Fairness and liberty actually take second place to care. 
Uh, you can see this in a sign that Emily and I saw at, uh, at Occupy, equality now, liberty later. Um, I found that libertarians love this sign. They love to put it in all the <laughs> magazines and things like that. Um, so if these are, we all have the same moral foundations, but for a variety of reasons, be it personal differences or the ideological stories you buy into, we build moralities on different sets of foundations. Um, let me now talk about libertarians, because if our goal here is to understand the eternal attraction of socialism, and we're actually saying it's sort of normal human psychology, it's quite useful to turn it around and say, well, who are these libertarians? What, what's up with them? Why is it that they are so opposed to socialism? And my group happens to have, I think, the best data set in the world on libertarian psychology. Um, first, I'll start by noting, as we all know, libertarians are not conservatives. As uh, Senator Hatch said when he was challenged by some libertarians in a primary, these people are not conservatives, they're not Republicans, they're radical libertarians, and I'm doggone offended by it. I despise these people. Now, um, so my colleagues and I at, at yourmorals.org, we have, we have uh, hundreds of surveys that we've put up online. We've had a half million people come to the site and fill them out, which means that we have, it's not nationally representative data. So our sampling is terrible, but our measurement is superb. There's always that trade-off. Um, <laughs> so we have data from lots of people on lots of studies. So we were able to draw from that because we also do something that few other places do. When you come and you register, a lot of places don't even ask politics. In fact, I'd love to know in your data on the, the variance, whether you know left, right, did you measure their politics in that study? Um, in who go, in whether they, in the, uh, the avatar game, where they, who do oh, they reassign to? Research, so I don't oh, okay, well, in, okay, in, but in, in all of your search, <laughs> I would urge you to, to okay. Um, so, at, uh, so at your morals, when people come to register, you can say that you are a liberal or on the left. I try to say progressive nowadays, but we used to, we used to say liberal. Um, uh, or whether you're on the right. And then we offer the option of saying libertarian, because libertarians cannot easily be placed normally on that dimension. As a result, we have data from tens of thousands of libertarians, which Gallup and other places generally don't, they don't generally ask that. So in the data I'm about to show you, <clears throat> um, about 12,000 libertarians, 80% male, and that is significant. Among the liberals, it's only 49% male. Um, so uh, we made up some, this is how we actually uh, did our original research into the Liberty Foundation. We, we uh, generated a bunch of items about economic liberty, like people who are successful in business should have a right to enjoy their wealth. Lifestyle liberty, a little different. I think everyone should be free to do as they choose, so long as they don't infringe upon the equal freedom of others. And what you see here is data graphed out by whether you're any of the left categories in blue, the right categories in red, or if you're libertarian. And when we look at the lifestyle liberty, we see that libertarians are highest. They're highest on both kinds. But they're highest and joined uh, by liberals in questions that have anything to do about sexual freedom, LGBT rights, things like that. So uh, libertarians and progressives are often allies. But if we look at economic matters, it's different. There, libertarians are highest again, but they're joined with conservatives. This is, and the gap with the left is huge on these economic liberty items. This is why I think libertarians more typically vote Republican than Democrat. <clears throat> um, the other trait that I'll tell you about, but we've looked at a lot of them, this is the sort of the master trait that summarizes all the others, I'd say. Uh, Simon Baron Cohen, the leading autism researcher, uh, says that um, we all start off as, well, as a fact, we all start off as girls in utero, but then if a Y chromosome is present, a little bit of testosterone pulses out, changes the body and brain. When the brain is changed from the female pattern over to the male pattern, 
it seems on average that the brain changes so that it gets a little better at systemizing it, thinking about uh, analyzing variables in a system, deriving underlying rules, um, and it gets a little worse at empathizing um, about identifying another person's emotions, thoughts, uh, and things like that. So there is an average male-female difference. Baron Cohen says that autism is really just if you're really high on systemizing and really low on empathizing, that's what we call you're at one end on the autism spectrum. Um, so this is sort of a master personality variable for cognitive kinds of traits. And here's the data. Uh, so we, we took about half of his items. It's a very long survey. And what you see is that libertarians are the highest on systemizing. And libertarians are the lowest on empathizing, those black bars in the middle. Libertarians, in fact, are the only group of the three groups for whom their scores on these surveys were actually higher on systemizing than empathizing in terms of their absolute scores. Progressives are the opposite. So libertarians have what you might call the most masculine cognitive style. It doesn't mean they're macho. It just means that on all the kinds of cognitive traits where you find a male-female difference, libertarians are more male. And we do these analyses within sex. So even if you just look at women, women who are attracted to libertarianism have a much more masculine cognitive style than women who are attracted to progressivism. Um, in sum, libertarians are the highest on all traits related to rationality and intelligence, um, but they are the lowest on all traits related to emotionality. There's one exception. There's one emotion on which libertarians rule. That is the emotion of reactance. Reactance is the anger you feel when someone tells you that you can't do something or when they try to control you. <laughs> so here are the questions in the survey. I find contradicting others stimulating. I don't know about if how many people are here from Cato, but I would guess that Cato, uh, people who work at Cato probably will score higher on that than people who work at, at other think tanks. Um, when something is prohibited, I usually think that's exactly what I'm going to do, like this. So here's a sort of a quintessential example of reactance uh, when the soda ban was reversed. Um, so libertarians value liberty more, and they value uh, most other moral values less. Uh, compared to progressives or conservatives. They rely on reason more and emotion less, and they have the most masculine cognitive style. So this, I think, helps us. We, we can see how, even though we all have the same apps, they either have different settings or some are on the home screen. Others, you know, for, for progressive, you'd have to kind of swipe, 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 swipe before you find. Uh, so, uh, so, and, so, all right. Um, so that's all I'll say about libertarians. Now, the third thing is uh, let's talk briefly about collected narratives. I think this helps why there's an enduring appeal and why a certain mindset takes over institutions such as the academy or Wall Street for that matter. Um, so collective narratives. Uh, my favorite quote in all of the social sciences, if I had to pick one, is this from Clifford Geertz, paraphrasing Max Weber. Man is an animal suspended in webs of significance that he himself has spun. That's what social life is. We kind of make it up, and then we live in it. And uh, many of you will recognize this is essentially what William Gibson was doing when he created those books and then the movies about The Matrix. The Matrix, he said, is a consensual hallucination. Now, as a social scientist, as a social psychologist, this is just beautiful, because this is what we study, is how do we hallucinate this? And then why does it have such a grip on us? But it does. Um, when I moved to the business school at, at uh, NYU um, in 2011, I had no interest in business. I just wanted to be in New York City um, to promote the righteous mind. But I began learning about capitalism. I'd known nothing about it before, practically. I began learning about capitalism and business. And I discovered that there are two very, very different stories being told. There's the one which is dominant in most of the university and on Occupy Wall Street about capitalism is basically exploitation. And then there's the one I was learning in the business school. And, and uh, I read a history of capitalism about, no, 
capitalism is, is liberation, it's value creation. And I got, was fascinated by these because both are formed into totally cohesive, self-contained narratives that are demonstrably true. All you have to do is look at the newspaper and you can see how true this story is. But they're two different incompatible stories. And over time, I sort of animated these into a PowerPoint talk, and then I hired somebody to turn that into a video. So I'm going to show you now two 90-second videos. Um, just before we start, please, what you do is so reach into your head, set your uh, switches, um, turn your care and fairness settings up to 11, please. And if you have a systemizing switch, turn that down to three. OK, got it? All right, roll the video, please. All right, or maybe I do it by here. Let's see. Once upon a time, work was real and authentic. Farmers raised crops, and craftsmen made goods with their own hands. <coughs> but then, capitalism was invented, and darkness spread across the land as the smokestacks of the Industrial Revolution covered everything in soot. The capitalists became ever more skilled at extracting productivity from workers and pocketing the gains from their labor. The workers eventually fought back by unionizing. In the early 20th century, as the brutality and stupidity of capitalism were exposed, many governments granted workers some protection <coughs> from the predators. Democratic welfare states were born. But the capitalists and their right-wing cronies were unrelenting. And in many countries, they have destroyed the unions, slashed regulations, and given the corporations free reign to exploit at will. So the rich get richer, the rest of us get poorer, our democracy gets weaker, and the planet gets hotter. It is now the duty of every decent person to join the fight against global capitalism and the super predators it has unleashed upon us. Okay, so that's a coherent story. It has a once upon a time, it has a clear villain, it has a trajectory, and it tells you what we need to do. Now I'll show you the second story, and what I want you to note is it's exactly the same structure. I literally wrote out a table of two columns and certain slots. I just plugged in different content, but it's the same structure. Oh, uh, and before you watch, please turn your liberty and systemizing up to 11, and turn care and empathizing down to three. Enjoy the show. Once upon a time, almost everyone was a peasant, a serf, or a slave. Kings and feudal lords took most of what people produced, so nobody had much reason to work hard. But then in the 17th century, capitalism was invented and the liberation began. In England, Holland, and America, they discovered that when you give people property rights, the rule of law, and free markets, you turn on a switch in their hearts. People want to work when they can keep the fruits of their labor. They want to invent new products, provide for their children, and be useful to others. Free market capitalism enables them to do these things. In the 20th century, some countries embraced communism and centralized planning, always with the same result. Shortages of everything, including food and freedom. But countries that embraced capitalism have grown prosperous in a single generation. Yet, despite the evidence of history, the left-wing egalitarians are unrelenting, and whenever they get control of a government, their first target is economic freedom. The egalitarians don't want to live in a world in which people who create more value for others get to enjoy more wealth for themselves. They'd rather that everyone be equal and equally poor. It is now the duty of every decent person to join the fight to protect capitalism and to extend its blessings to all of humankind.
Okay, well, I could take a vote on which one uh, you prefer, but I think that's probably not necessary. Um, all right, so if there are these two coherent stories that are organizing political groups, political parties, um, well, not necessarily parties, but if there are these coherent stories out there, what do we do? Is there a way forward? Um, do we need a third story? Uh, I'm not sure what the answer is to that, but I think that it's important for all of us to recognize that both of these stories actually have a lot of truth to them. Even if you, even if you prefer one, the other one does have some real truth to it. What I'm finding is I'm, I'm traveling around many countries, I'm writing a book on morality and capitalism, and I'm finding that across countries, the left generally stands for decency even at the cost of dynamism, and the right generally stands for dynamism even at the cost of decency. Um, and so just from the last couple days while I was preparing this talk, um, American capitalism, uh, has, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of humiliation, there is a lot of suffering, there are a lot of people who fall through the cracks. Uh, certainly from a European perspective, we have embraced dynamism to the point of ignoring uh, decency. This was just this morning on the plane down. I, uh, you know, a new, all these leaks going on, some very clear examples in Wisconsin of exactly how corporations bought legislation. So there's a lot of truth to that first story. Um, and so I understand why they say, look, we, you know, if you just have unbridled freedom, this is what you get, is this kind of corruption. This is why we need to enforce, we need to get more equality. I understand that. Um, but I also came across, while preparing this talk, this quote from Milton Friedman. A society that aims for equality before liberty will end up with neither equality nor liberty. Uh, it always ends up, when the initial efforts to, force to create equality don't work, they end up pushing harder and harder and harder. And a society that aims first for liberty will not end up with equality, but it will end up with a closer approach to equality than any other kind of system that has ever been developed. So I think it's certainly worth at least uh, uh, meditating on that. It seems like it is true to me. Um, so what can we do so that we don't have this eternal groundhog day of recurrence of bad economic thinking? I have four suggestions. The first is, boy, it sure would help if we could reduce the role of money in politics and make that first story less true about how uh, power and legislation happen in this country. Uh, second, I've been reading Yuval Levin's uh, wonderful uh, book, Fractured Republic, and I'm now a big fan, not just of his, but of, his, of the importance of subsidiarity, of having things dealt with at the lowest level possible, not kicking it up to the federal government, which is, has a terrible record of solving problems. So subsidiarity combined with a general orientation towards experimentation. Let's try a program. And if it really does undermine incent have perverse incentives, we'll know it and then we'll stop. We won't just roll it out to the whole country. So subsidiarity plus experimentalism as the, as the way to deal with social problems, I think would give us much better economic, econo economically sound uh, policy and uh, programs. Third, if I were, uh, if I were king and uh, there were no constitutional limits on what I could do, I would uh, reduce the amount of math we make kids learn. It's a kind of a 19th century idea that if we make them exercise their brain on this, they'll get smarter. It's not true. Even scientists don't generally need that much math. What we need is a populist that is literate in analytical thinking. And so a year of statistics and a year of economics would do wonders for economic thinking, as we saw in, uh, in John's example of a single economics course as an undergraduate. Um, uh, my fourth suggestion is that I think we need to increase viewpoint diversity in the academy. Um, as we've heard, the, uh, uh, there's a kind of a, a very much pro-socialist way of thinking in most depart in many departments at universities. Uh, we need to expose students to at least a variety of ways of thinking. This graph shows how the academy has changed uh, in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. The left-right ratio used to be just two to one. 
as late as 1996, if you, a representative sample of all professors, in 1996, the blue line on top is people who said they were on the left, only twice as many people on the left as the right. And that's fine with me. I don't care about equality. I just want to make sure that if someone says something from a leftist or rightist perspective, someone out there will challenge it. That's what I want. Um, but over the next 15 years, things had changed. Now it's five to one. And most of the non-leftists there are in engineering schools or dental schools. If you look at the core areas of the humanities and social scientists, it's between 10 to 1 and 50 to 1, left to right. That's why um, I and some other colleagues started an organization called Heterodox Academy. Lita and John are members. And any professors who are out there watching this talk, I urge you to go to heterodoxacademy.org and join. Uh, we're just trying to say diversity is good. Shouldn't we have diversity of thinking? So. Um, if we can do those things, I think and hope that we will have at least a little less foolishness going forward. Thank you. Thank you, John. Um, knowing that uh, I had, or we had, three very good and interesting and accomplished speakers coming, I realized there wouldn't be much uh, time for questions. Um, I. But I do want to start by a question uh, on a subject that wasn't uh, addressed uh, from, a, uh, from a reader, uh, or rather a Cato supporter who, uh, who asked this when he, um, uh, when he saw that the forum was taking place. And, and his question goes something like this. Belief in socialism seems to spring from the error of anthropomorphism. The human brain evolved to recognize patterns and compare, compare them by analogy. Uh, since one's own life and actions are directed by conscious motivations, we too easily assume all effective action is motivated by conscious actors. Uh, thus, social problems are more effectively solved by conscientiously motivated central planning. Uh, the far greater fecundity of market spontaneous order under a system of property rights is extremely counterintuitive. And I realize that we have touched upon it um, in, in different forms. But this specific notion of anthropomorphism, does, does it have any validity or not? I think there's uh, an even simpler way of, of looking at it, which is if you're living in a very small social group, and uh, Jonathan <clears throat> referred to Simon Baron Cohen's work, uh, which is in a general topic of what's called theory of mind, our ability to read minds, not in the spooky sense, but in the sense of being able to infer the intentions, beliefs, and desires of other people. Crucial, if you're living in a small social group, you're reading the minds of the people around you all the time, and you're discussing what to do. There are lots of problems to solve in that very small social group. Um, you're discussing what to do amongst people that you know. And so in, in that environment, and those are not dynamic environments, remember. I mean, the kinds of increases in, in everything that we've seen in the last 200 years are historically very novel. In that kind of environment, the decisions that you make with other people do have an impact on what you actually do. And so, sure, I mean, there's some anthropomorphism, and I, I, don't, I think there's something to, to that <clears throat> comment, but I think even more simply, we evolved in a case where things that I thought and intended to do actually had an effect on what my social group did. Anybody else? Okay. Are there any questions? Do we have mics around? <coughs> okay. In the corner, Fred Smith.
Uh, one of the things that seems like we've maybe over, under, overlooked is that, that Adam Smith himself created, uh, drew attention to two human-evolved traits, self-interest that we understand very well and we've talked about as sort of a negative self-serving trait, but he also talked about the empathy, the thing we've talked about. It seems to me that capitalism does, but is unappreciated in its ability to synthesize those two traits. One, the self-interest gives you a motivational drive to do something successful, but the empathy allows you to read your business partners, your customers, your workers, and so on much more effectively. And then, in effect, capitalism is a tool for honing the two basic evolutionary instincts of mankind. It hasn't been able to get appreciation for that, and I think that's a mystery in itself. Why has it? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. No, I, th I think that is uh, is certainly true. Um, when I teach uh, when I teach courses to my my business students, um, I ask them, uh, "How much of your day do you spend cooperating, and how much do you spend competing?" Because people seem to think that capitalism is all about competition, and of course that's an essential element. But it's overwhelmingly about cooperation. It's, it's ways of, of creating cooperation on vast, vast scales. Um, and so, yes, I think it gets a bad rap, very much for the reason that Lita gave in her main talk, which is we're not, some, we're not just focused on what someone actually did for us. We really are trying to figure out, did he mean to do it? Because that's what we need to know if, to know if he's friend or foe. And capitalism just ignores that kind of moral attribution. Um, I wanted to give a shout out for being a female and a libertarian and the systematizing <laughs> empathy thing. Um, <clears throat> I'm not, I'm not going to deny being systematizing by any means. That would be insane and nobody would believe me. Um, but um, I also, I grew up in Montgomery County and I didn't even know the term private sector growing up. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so uh, the, the things, it, it was actually, the idea of individual liberty was ob obvious to me, right? But the idea that extended to anything economic was not obvious to me. And one of the first things that made me start thinking differently was actually a work of human ethology called The Territorial Imperative, where they mentioned that in the Soviet Union on these collectivized farms, that only 3% of the land was being privately farmed, but it was producing 50 to 75% of all the produce in the Soviet Union. And I thought to myself, huh, that would be really, if, if to make everything collectivized, I would be starving people. That would be really bad. I don't want to starve people. I mean, it was an, it was an, it was an empathy response. And there were several other empathy responses, like when, you know, I had empathy for Hank Reardon when I saw things from his point of view. Um, I think that there's, and, and then as I learned more and more and more and more about how markets work, I, I don't even understand, if you really understand it and you think about the modern world and, and the, how it's created wealth for, for everybody, um, I mean, it, it, in places where there are free markets and so forth, then to me, you're being incredibly lacking in empathy to, to, to not want to help help freedom go forward. I mean, what kind of person would do that? What kind of person would want to put us back into a situation where everybody is equally starving? It's horrible. So I, I just wanted to give a shout out there for libertarian empathy. It's <laughs> okay, but, but I want to point out that you were moved by an argument and a statistic. That, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that's the not denying. <laughs> There's a question right in the back. Um, you, you talked about 
Uh, who are you, please? Oh, sorry? Uh, name, please. Oh, oh, oh Arnold Klein. Okay. Um, you talked about the, um, the issue of a zero sum and how that's sort of not a good way of looking at things. And certainly, over very long periods of time, wealth is not a zero sum game. But short term and immediate status is always a zero sum game. And I wonder if you'd comment on sort of status as a, an issue or a motivator for people in thinking about politics. So, yeah, the, the, uh, uh, that's a very important point. So, uh, material goods are one set of things that people like and benefit from. And for our hunter-gatherer ancestors, and also for us, because we're running uh, many of the same programs in our heads, or all the same programs in our heads, uh, positional goods were a major uh, part of what the, a positional good, uh, for those who don't know, is one in which uh, they're inherently zero. So, so a, a, a dominance rank, for example, is uh, you get benefits based from what your position is in the rank. And that's inherently zero sum because you go up, somebody else has to come down. Um, and whereas material goods are not like that. So we are swimming in a, you know, there's uh, dog bakeries and I still can't, I still have moral qualms about what, even walking by a dog bakery, even though I like dogs, right? But it just seems, uh, you know, anyway. But, but the, uh, 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 the underlying thing about positional goods uh, is that they were important. Uh, who you, may, what mate you got, uh, how, how much people would sacrifice for you had to do with your status, right? Uh, and your ability to have influence on outcomes, on conflicts that you cared about. So, and so there is this, it's a very interesting uh, emotion, envy, uh, with uh, 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 a scholar named uh, Schenk, I don't know how to pronounce the German exactly as I ought, but anyway, uh, he, he wrote a book on it. It's an extremely ubiquitous kind of phenomenon. It's for people, nobody wants to admit to it, but if you look as an anthropologist, if you look at small-scale societies like, you know, little Greek villages where the land is extremely unproductive and there's all these sort of rock, uh, just to get the rocks off the soil. Anyway, somebody else's gain in your little village is your is is a loss to others, right? And so they have all sorts of, uh, evil eye notion, you don't want to say anything good about your child or yourself. Uh, there's, there's this uh, witchcraft accusations, there's, uh, but even in the modern world, a lot of, uh, so, so there is empathy for sure in uh, the Occupy Wall Street, but there's also a kind of vituperative desire to pull down, okay? And uh, that comes from thinking that, and probably realistically, that uh, people who are more prosperous and productive uh, enjoy higher status. And that is just intrinsically an assault on the human mind. Um, and so, uh, anyway. Anyone else? Okay, I hate to do this. I absolutely hate to do this, but uh, we have to um, end our forum here. Uh, lunch is served upstairs. Uh, please uh, help me thank our speakers today. Thank you. Thank you.